0: We have seen Joseph thrown into two different pits so far. The first one was the cistern where his jealous brothers threw him in. That was back in the land of Canaan. And then we had the roundhouse, as it was called in Hebrew, the prison, which Joseph himself referred to as a pit in chapter 40 because of the false accusation of Potiphar's wife. And at the end of last week, we thought he was about to get out because he had interpreted the dreams of the baker and the cupbearer, and the cupbearer said, oh yeah, I'll tell Pharaoh all about you. But we know, as we will read in the first verse of this chapter, it was a long time before the cupbearer remembered Joseph. So he's still in this pit. And sometimes in life, when we are in the pit, so to speak, when we are suffering in some way when we are struggling all we can think about in those moments is getting out of it isn't that true when we're struggling in our marriage when we're struggling with our health when our job is getting us down even to the level of cultural and and national oppression and war you you think to yourself when is this going to be over And that's all that we can think about. But what we're going to see in the story today is that God has a bigger plan than just getting you out of that pit. And what's encouraging about what we're going to learn today, Joseph will see God does not keep us in the pit one minute longer than is necessary, which is, thank you, Lord, but also not one minute shorter than is necessary to accomplish his purposes, because his timing and his preparation are impeccable. And many times we think we know when the right time to be released from the pit is, but God is sitting back saying, I've got bigger plans than just letting you go. Galatians chapter 6, great verses to set this stage for what we're going to talk about today. Verses 7 through 9, Paul wrote, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. And that's usually where we pause we stop? It's like, that's why you got to stop sinning. If you don't stop sinning, bad things are going to happen. Well, that's true, but there's a whole other half to that verse. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. So he's saying, just as God is not going to be mocked by flagrant sin that presumes upon His grace, nor is God going to be mocked by His enemies and allowing His people to walk faithfully, sowing to the Spirit and not reap eternal life from that. Which is why verse 9 tells us, So let us not grow weary of doing good. For in due season we will reap if we do not give up. Without those pits, Joseph would never have become what he did. And God knew it. So every time that Joseph prayed, Lord, get me out of here. Please, I'll do anything. God is saying to himself, just wait, Joseph. You don't, you don't know what you're asking. You think what you're asking for is the best thing. But I know better than you do. And you will see in time. So let's read the first eight verses of this chapter, and we'll take it one section at a time. After two whole years, Pharaoh dreamed that he was standing by the Nile. And behold, there came up out of the Nile seven cows, attractive and plump, and they fed in the reed grass. And behold, seven other cows, ugly and thin, came up out of the Nile after them and stood by the other cows on the bank of the Nile. And the ugly, thin cows ate up the seven attractive, plump cows. And Pharaoh awoke, and he fell asleep and dreamed a second time. And behold, seven ears of grain, plump and good, were growing on one stalk. And behold, after them sprouted seven ears, thin and blighted by the east wind. And the thin ears swallowed up the seven plump, full ears. And Pharaoh awoke, and behold, it was a dream. So in the morning his spirit was troubled. And he sent and called for all the magicians of Egypt and all its wise men. Pharaoh told them his dreams, but there was none who could interpret them to Pharaoh. So we don't always get timestamps stamps in the book of Genesis, as I've said, but we do get one here in chapter 41, verse 1, after two whole years after the incident with the butler and the baker. And we know that later on it's going to be nine more years until Joseph sees his family again, so that can help orient you in the story. But it's been two years since the cupbearer promised that he would remember Joseph to Pharaoh. But as it said in verse 23, the last chapter, he forgot Joseph. And you can imagine as the days went on and Joseph began to despair, maybe he was tempted to sin. Maybe he was tempted to give up on God. So you know what? I've been living my whole life trying to do the right thing. I've done the right thing. I've been good at what I do. I've been kind. I've been righteous. And it's only got me thrown into pit after pit after pit. Forget it. If I'm going to be stuck in the pit, then I'm going to stop living like I'm not. Maybe he was even tempted to end his life. It obviously doesn't say that, but can you imagine? It's been 13 years at this point since he was taken from his family. When you're in the pit, when you're going through something, when you're driving home from work and you know you're going into another combative evening with your wife, or you're driving to work in the morning and you know it's going to be another miserable day, not just because the work is hard, but because the people are awful and it's going to be a strain on your spirit. When you're in the pit, every moment seems like an eternity, doesn't it? Every single minute stretches longer and longer. What do we say? Time flies when you're having fun, but when you're not having fun... It seems like the clock goes backwards, like when you're in school. Seventh period was always the longest period because it was the end of the day, and that class seemed to last three hours instead of 40 minutes or whatever it was. I mean, you consider a faithful woman like Corrie Ten Boom in that concentration camp. No hope of ever getting out, watching everybody die around her. As far as she knew, she's waiting to die. Every day must have felt like an an eternity, even though she did trust the Lord and she was faithful. Or somebody like Adoniram Judson, who was the first missionary to Burma, what is now Myanmar. He labored for years. I think it was something like five or six years before his first convert. And then after like 20 years, it was only 18 or something like that. Most of us would look at that and say, well, this doesn't seem like a very fruitful ministry, so we're going to move on. But he knew he was called. That didn't mean it was any less agonizing day by day by day, week after week, preaching and nobody showing up to listen. I bet you Joseph felt the same way. Day after day, it just gets worse and worse. And as we read last week, there's a proverb that says, hope deferred makes the heart sick. So Joseph probably feels worse after his encounter with the butler, giving him hope than he did before. Because before maybe he had resigned himself that, you know what? This is the way it's going to be. I'm okay with it. But then he's given a glimmer of hope and it's snatched away from him. He probably felt worse after that. But the attitude that we've got to have is the attitude that Job showed us. You know the story of Job. First, he lost all of his stuff. Then he lost all of his children. Then he lost his health. But what did Job say? In Job chapter 1, verse 21, he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And then in chapter 2, verse 10, when his wife came to him and told him to curse God and die. What does that mean? She says, you're sitting here serving this God that killed all of our children and took away everything you've ever had and has now afflicted you with boils. You, just end your life. I can't stand seeing you like this. But he said to her, shall we receive good from God and shall we not receive evil? There's a verse for an American church to ponder, isn't it? Shall we receive good from God and shall we not receive evil? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips my suspicion is that joseph didn't sin with his lips either he had learned by now that life was completely out of his hands even when everything was going perfect even when he had all the security so to speak in the world it could get turned over in an instant so i'll bet you he was learning the lesson that waiting watching the horizon for the cavalry to come in is no way to go through life waiting for it to be over you've got to take it day by day and live it to the glory of the Lord. Why is this the best attitude to have? It sounds so good to say, but it's also hard to live out. Why is this good though? This calls for a firm Christian belief in the supernatural around you. You can't see everything that's going on in the spirit. You can't see what God is doing. You can't see what the Lord's angels are arranging for you. You can't see the other person's life that God is moving into position. You can't see the Holy Spirit. Sometimes you can see the effects of the wind, so to speak, but you can't see what he's doing. All those years that Joseph was in prison, God was working. What was he doing during those two years? God wasn't idle. God was restoring the credibility of that disgraced cupbearer. After two years of faithful service, he had worked his way back into the good graces of Pharaoh. So now Pharaoh is prepared to listen to what he has to say. Not only that, the Lord is sending Pharaoh these dreams distressing his spirit to the point where he's desperate and he's willing to listen to anybody. And during those days, Joseph had no clue that any of that was going on. And if he were to see it, he might say, oh, well, I I can wait then. I see what's going on. In In a much smaller scale, I've seen this happen before where I'll be handling a situation in ministry or at the church or what have you, and People will start to get angry at the way I'm handling things or, or whoever is handling things. and You get frustrated because you know you don't know everything that's going on in this situation. I heard that you said this or that to that person. And you're thinking to yourself, you don't know what this or that person said, but I'm not about to reveal that to you. And, and sometimes you reveal what's going on. You reveal why a decision was made and somebody goes, oh, oh, well that makes a lot of sense then to me. But you ought to hope that somebody that's loved you and known you for a long time would give you the benefit of the doubt and trust that I don't really get this, but I know him or I know her, I'm going to I'm going to trust that they know what they're doing. How much more so is that true of God? Well, God, you got to show me what's going on cuz I don't get it. And the Lord says, I don't have to show you a thing. Job asked God to show him. He said, if I was in a courtroom, I'd prove myself righteous right now. And the Lord showed up in the whirlwind, and God didn't tell Job anything. He didn't tell him why it happened. He said, I'm the Lord that made the earth and sea, and I can see when the deer give birth, and I have storehouses laden with snow. Who are you to ask me questions, Job? And that's the the truth for us, too. Sometimes you get to see why you were in the pit, and those are glorious moments, aren't they? Sometimes you don't. But you have to trust that God is working it out when you can't see. You have no right to question God, because you don't know when help is coming. God is always working on your redemption. And it comes back to, do you trust God or not? Amen. Verse 9, so Joseph is languishing in prison, but at the same time, the Lord is maneuvering and getting things ready for his release. Verse 9, then the chief cupbearer said to Pharaoh, I remember my offenses today. <laughs> I wonder what Pharaoh said to that. What did you do now? Now? <laughs> When Pharaoh was angry with his servants and put me and the chief baker in custody in the house of the captain of the guard, we dreamed on the same night, he and I, each having a dream with its own interpretation. A young Hebrew was there with us, a servant of the captain of the guard. When we told him, he interpreted our dreams to us, giving an interpretation to each man according to his dream. And as he interpreted to us, so it came about. I was restored to my office and the baker was hanged. Then Pharaoh sent and called Joseph, and they quickly brought him out of the pit. And when he had shaved himself and changed his clothes, he came in before Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, I've had a dream, and there is no one who can interpret it. I have heard it said of you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. Joseph answered Pharaoh, it is not in me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer, or an answer of peace, of shalom, would be the literal translation there. Okay, so Pharaoh, remember, the Egyptians had a, a fascination with dreams. And we've discovered ancient books that would help them interpret dreams. A lot of them, believe it or not, were based on puns. If there was something that sounded like something in your life, that was symbolic of that thing. A lot of the prophets do that the same way. Or the this or that was supposed to represent this thing in your life. And very similar to, you can buy books like this today, if you go over to Barnes & Noble or Borders or whatever it is. But they did not know what was going on, so now the cupbearer finally speaks up. Probably was afraid to remind Pharaoh of the time you sent me away to prison for a while. But he tells him of, he says, the young Hebrew, that word keeps coming up. Remember, at this point, Hebrew was not a specific term for the Jews. It was a general reference to anybody outside of especially Egyptian culture that was unsettled. It, It comes from the word that means to move or to travel, almost like Europeans think of gypsies. It can be used as an insult, as we've seen. And over time, we're going to see that it will come to represent the Hebrew people. And by the time you get to the book of Hebrews, it's very specifically talking about Jews. But at this point, he's saying there's some, some gypsy kid, some kid not from around here, but he was able to interpret dreams. And so Pharaoh says, well, we've tried everybody else. Let's call him. Almost like Naaman, the Syrian, who had tried everything to cleanse his leprosy until his slave girl says, you should go to Elisha in the land of Israel. He was finally desperate enough to listen. And I imagine Joseph was surprised because there's no warning here. It's not on the news where he's watching what's going on. He's going about his duties as helping administrate the prison. Somebody bursts in and says, time to go, Joseph. (laughs) Wait a minute, where are we going? You got to go see Pharaoh. Got to go see Pharaoh. What would I do this time? And and while I'm sure, and we know he was relieved to get out of that pit, you imagine being taken out of the place where you've been living and staying for years now. We know how hard it is even today for those who have been in prison a long time to try to acclimate. Well, he is getting thrust out of this prison. And it says that he was shaved because you know that the Egyptians, they would shave their heads totally bald. They would wear the wigs because they were very fastidious about being clean. This is going to come back later when the Israelites will come in and they're shepherds, they're herdsmen, and they see that as an unclean thing. They would have the big long beards, which they saw that as unsanitary. So Joseph is shaved. We can imagine that some of the makeup, the eyeliner and the things that were put on them as part of their culture, he would have been dressed up like that, to look like an Egyptian. And he's presented before Pharaoh himself. And Pharaoh says, I need somebody to interpret dreams and I've heard that you're good at that. And Joseph, I love this. He answers in humility. He doesn't come out and say, well, yes, I'm rather gifted in this area. I've had some experience. No, no, no. He says, it is not in me. This is how we should always act when somebody, for example, wants us to lay hands on the sick and pray for them. We have faith that our God heals the sick. We have faith that the Bible tells us to pray for the sick, but don't start around like you've got magical power. You have no power but you know a God who can, and that's how Joseph presents himself. That's also how Daniel presents himself, remember? Nebuchadnezzar says, well, I'm about ready to kill every wise man and astrologer and psychologist in the land of Babylon. What do you got? And Daniel goes, I have nothing, but I know the Lord. And that is, that's a good example, maybe something you can go home and ponder on your own, that it's not you, it's the Lord. It's always the Lord. But we see here the perfect, sovereign timing of God, don't we? Joseph was released at just the right time. This was perfect, sovereign, divine timing. I wonder if he ever had the opportunity to escape. You ever think about that? I wonder if Joseph was ever offered to get out of there. We've we've speculated that perhaps Potiphar knew that his wife was a scoundrel, and that's why he didn't have Joseph executed and why he allowed him to rise the way that he did. We know that the jailer, the warden of the prison, loved Joseph. I wonder if they ever offered to get him out of there. Who knows? But if he had been released before this, he would never have had this opportunity. If the cupbearer had reported into Pharaoh the day he got out, Joseph would have been freed and probably would have been living a good life, but he wouldn't be living this life. He would never have had this opportunity. Because at this moment, what's going on? Pharaoh's ready to listen. Any day before this day, Pharaoh would not have given a young Hebrew boy from prison the time of day. Joseph's pride had been broken. We've talked about this, that I think it's entirely possible that you read the early chapters of Joseph where he's not the, the kind, sweet kid we see in all the movies, but he was something of a spoiled brat, rubbing it in his brother's face that I had a dream that y'all going to bow down to me someday, strutting around in his Technicolor dream coat, remember? Whatever the case, whether that was true of him or not, Joseph's pride, whatever was left of it, is long gone now. So he's not about to stand before Pharaoh and try to act like he's somebody. And at this moment, only God is going to be glorified. The perfect moment. God will not share his glory, and God is so patient. God is willing to wait. God is willing to use men like Gideon, where everybody looks at them and goes, Well, (laughs) couldn't have been him. must be God. I hope that that's the reputation that I have and that we all gain at some point. It's not that we're so clever or so smart or so well-spoken or good at ministry or have great techniques and methods. People look at us and say, God must just be using them. This was the perfect moment. And you've got to trust God for this in your own life. Do you believe that God can see the whole story and knows just when to act? You've got to believe that. 13 years From the time Joseph had been thrown in that dry well by his brothers and just missed being rescued by Reuben by just a couple hours. Thirteen years later, but now where is he? He's in the Pharaoh's court. And he gets the chance to testify of the Lord God. God knows exactly when the right time is. Isaiah 46, verses 8-11, through the Lord exalts over this. Remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. How so? Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. Calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my counsel from a far country, I have spoken and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed and I will do it. What a great little section of scripture that is. Remember the former things of old. That is, check your history, guys. Have I ever been late? Have I ever failed to come through? For I am the Lord. I declare the end from the beginning. God knows what happens at the end of the book. And not only that, He has revealed what happens in the end. He says, I call a bird of prey from the east and a man of my counsel from a far country. The Lord says, it doesn't matter if I've got to have a bird in the right place or my man in the right place. I know how to get it done because I'm that wise. My purpose will stand. Do we believe that about our God? Haven't you found that to be true? Haven't there been moments in your life where you say, if that happened a split second later, it would have all been over. If this had not happened on this day or right at this time, then I would have been lost. I thought this was the deadline, but it turns out by waiting an extra two weeks, something good happened. The Lord knows. The same Lord who is able to bring forth Christ in the fullness of time, as Galatians 4.4 says, the Lord knew just the right moment for Jesus to be born. He has his eye on you. And sometimes you're looking at your life and you say, well, everything looks really good right now, Lord. But sometimes there are other pieces that God's lining up. Not least of all, your own heart. Sometimes everything's ready, but God's just waiting on you to get your heart right. Because when he brings you before Pharaoh, he's not about to have you saying, yes, I can interpret dreams, I'm really good at it, and I've done it before. So trust the timing of the Lord. Verse 17. This is very characteristic of ancient Semitic literature, especially Hebrew literature, that There are repetitions of the story. We've seen this a lot in Genesis where you tell it in the first half of the chapter, and then you're going to tell the whole thing again. It's it's a matter of emphasis, of reminding you of the importance of something. So, verse 17, Pharaoh said to Joseph, Behold, in my dream I was standing on the banks of the Nile. Seven cows, plump and attractive, came up out of the Nile and fed in the reed grass. Seven other cows came up after them, poor and very ugly and thin, such as I have never seen in all the land of Egypt. And the thin, ugly cows ate up the first seven plump cows. But when they had eaten them, no one would have known that they had eaten them, for they were still as ugly as at the beginning. Then I awoke. I also saw in my dream seven ears growing on one stalk, full and good. Seven ears, withered thin and blighted by the east wind, sprouted after them. And the thin ears swallowed up the seven good ears. And I told it to the magicians, but there was no one who could explain it to me. I know folks, little parentheses here, well that is their exact testimony. I went to the magicians, I went to the fortune tellers, I went to the astrologers, and they couldn't help me, but I came to Jesus. So that one's free, we'll keep them going, verse 25. Then Joseph said to Pharaoh, the dreams of Pharaoh are one. God has revealed to Pharaoh what he's about to do. The seven good cows are seven years, and the seven good ears are seven years. The dreams are one. The seven lean and ugly cows that came up after them are seven years, and the seven empty ears blighted by the east wind are also seven years of famine. It is as I told Pharaoh. God has shown to Pharaoh what he is about to do. There will come seven years of great plenty throughout all the land of Egypt, but after them there will arise seven years of famine, and all the plenty will be forgotten in the land of Egypt. The famine will consume the land, and the plenty will be unknown in the land by reason of the famine that will follow, for it will be very severe." And the doubling of Pharaoh's dream means that the thing is fixed by God and God will shortly bring it about. Now, therefore, let Pharaoh select a discerning and wise man and set him over the land of Egypt. Let Pharaoh proceed to appoint overseers over the land and take one fifth of the produce of the land of Egypt during the seven plentiful years and let them gather all the food of these good years that are coming and store up grain under the authority of Pharaoh for food in the cities and let them keep it. That food shall be a reserve for the land against the seven years of famine that are to occur in the land of Egypt, so that the land may not perish through the famine. So Pharaoh retells the story. He adds a couple of little details here. Some people see suspicious things in that, which I find absolutely ridiculous. Ah, see, this time he said that they weren't any fatter after they ate them. So clearly you've got two different authors here. Well, no. You've probably heard of that, that there are four different authors of the book of Genesis. It's called the Documentary Hypothesis. It has basically been debunked at this point. There there are very few up-to-date scholars who take that seriously, at least in the biblical studies world. You still hear this put out there because it's very convenient for people to discount the book of Genesis. We talked about it at the beginning. But just a reminder, this is the kind of thing they see. We don't have any copies of Genesis that are cut in pieces. They just assume that they should be cut in pieces because the story's in there twice. And why would they put it in there twice? Which seems to me a rather foolish reason to start cutting up the Bible. But I digress. So another pair of dreams for Joseph. All of the dreams that he's had have come in twos. right? He had the sheaves of wheat and the stars that were all bowing down to him, the sun and the moon. He had the dream of the butler and the dream of the baker. And now he has the dream of the seven cows and the seven stalks of grain. I don't know that there's any significance to that other than what Joseph said here, that the doubling of the dream makes it a sure thing. And I want to point out to you a few things here, that the way the story is told is very Egyptian, which lends credibility to what we claim and as we believe that this was written As a true story, the fact that he refers to the cows coming up out of the Nile and feeding in the reed grass. The cattle in the land of Egypt, it's hot in the land of Egypt. Their habit was, and might still be for all I know, to go down into the water and stay almost entirely submerged to stay cool. And they would come out and to eat the reed grass, that's the famous papyrus reed that grows in Egypt that was used to make paper. And a lot of the New Testament was printed on that. Very, very specific Egyptian detail. You've also got this reference to the east wind. In Egyptian, this is called the Khamsin. This is a hot wind that would blow out of the desert and it would come to the fertile lands of Egypt and the heat would scorch the plant life and of course make it very hot for the, the people and the animals as well. So that is a very specific reference as well, which is exactly what we should expect if it's being written by a person that was actually in Egypt similar to when we read about Daniel, to use him again, and the references he makes to Babylon. They all line up with what we know historically, and uh, should build your faith a little bit. People say, the Bible was written thousands of years later. Well, it doesn't seem like it, because it seems like what we should expect if it was written at the time it was written. But Joseph is able to interpret the dream with sovereign wisdom from the Lord. Seven years of plenty, and then seven years of famine. He also gives him a word of wisdom concerning taxation and preparation he gives him a recommendation on how to overhaul the Egyptian infrastructure to handle this project it's a real cool example of what in the New Testament context we'd call multiple spiritual gifts at work here you've got a gift of discernment going on you've got a gift of prophecy going on you've got a gift of a word of wisdom and all this is like deja vu for Joseph he's done this a couple times First time he had the dreams and seemed like he kind of knew what what it meant, and his father seemed to know what it meant, and his brothers had an inkling of what he was trying to get at by sharing this with them. And then when he encountered the, the butler and the baker, same thing. And now he's been prepared. God's been preparing Joseph for this moment his whole life. He made him familiar with dreams and interpretations. And he granted him faith by allowing him to do this at a lower risk level before he was prepared for the big moment. He gave him the chance to learn administration and to learn wisdom and to do it in a couple different contexts. And now Joseph is ready for what God has been setting him up for. The Lord does this to his people. He puts us in the pit sometimes to prepare us for what he wants us to do when we come out of that pit. Consider Elijah, who prophesied to Ahab that there's going to be no rain except at my command. And the Lord says, get ye to the brook Cherith. And I'm going to have the ravens feed you and you're going to drink water from the brook. What's he doing? He's building his faith. He's preparing him. You know he's spending that time praying and seeking the Lord and meditating on his word. And then after that, where did he go? He went to the house of the widow. A similar situation. He's got to trust the Lord for his miracles. So now when he goes to Mount Carmel and he's going to pray down fire from heaven, he's been prepared for that. This is what God does. He sends us into the pit to prepare us for what's coming next. Don't despise the lessons that you learn when things are hard because there are people that need that from you. Paul wrote this in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 3-4. through 4. These are some of my favorite Bible verses. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. He says, when you're going through hard times, God helps you so that when you come out of those hard times, you can help the next person. When you've been through a difficult season in your marriage, when you've been through the loss of a job or a horrible boss, when you've been through even something as difficult as persecution or a miscarriage or a health issue, you're able to go to the next person and help walk them through that and you become a vessel of God's grace in that person's life. Your life lessons, the wisdom you gain, the fortitude and the strength that you gain going through things. Just having been to the edge and the brink of yourself and seen that God's got you makes you strong so that the next time it happens, you're ready to roll. And everybody else is panicking and you're standing strong in faith because you've already been there with the Lord. The humility you gain, the faith that you gain. Your familiarity with God, your familiarity with the gifts of the Spirit. I found very often the Lord, when He wants to do something mighty through you, He starts you out small. This is what we do when we're training pastors. You've got to do it, but we're going to start small, let you build up and let you work up to it. These things cannot be bought. They can only be earned in the pit, so to speak. And God knows that. And now Joseph is maybe beginning to realize that, all this time, all these 13 years I've been suffering, God has been breaking me down and building me up into the kind of man that he can use in this situation. So when you're going through your tough time, hey, don't, don't discount what God might be doing in you. Don't resist the hand of the Lord because God is working on you. The New Testament calls this the pruning process. Every vine that bears fruit, he prunes. What is pruning? It's cutting stuff off. That's not a a nice process. But we need it, don't we? Well, you know the story, I believe. Let's get to verse 37. This proposal pleased Pharaoh and all his servants. And Pharaoh said to his servants, Can we find a man like this? In whom is the Spirit of God? Underline that last phrase, would you? Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Since God has shown you all this, there is none so discerning and wise as you are. You shall be over my house, and all my people shall order themselves as you command. Only as regards the throne will I be greater than you. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, See, I have set you over all the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh took his signet ring from his hand, put it on Joseph's hand, and clothed him in garments of fine linen, and put a gold chain about his neck. And he made him ride in his second chariot. And they called out before him, Bow the knee! Thus he set him over all the land of Egypt. Moreover, Pharaoh said to Joseph, I am Pharaoh, and without your consent, no one shall lift up hand or foot in all the land of Egypt. And Pharaoh called Joseph's name Zaphanat paneah And he gave him in marriage Asenath, the daughter of Potipharah, priest of On. So Joseph went out over the land of Egypt. So Pharaoh, all the wise men, they not only believe Joseph, they take his advice, because it's good advice. And he recognizes, as we saw in verse 38, the Spirit of God was in him. This is just like in Acts chapter 4, when they looked at the apostles and they marveled at them. They say, these guys are untrained, they're unlettered, they're peasants. And they come in here and they're bold and they're brave and they're speaking with authority. And then it says they remembered that they had been with Jesus. It was God in him, just like he had said. This is why we take extra time to focus on our relationship with the Lord rather than the moment itself. That's why Jesus said, don't worry about what you're going to say when you're brought before kings and queens. He says, you you just focus on getting to know me and my spirit will speak for you. And Joseph is again, for the third time, made the second in command. First time was in Potiphar's house. But this time it's over all of Egypt the superpower of the day. Egypt was the dominant empire at this time. Been brought up to vice president, or the the role that we think this would have been called at the time is the vizier, the one who did all the actual running of the kingdom while Pharaoh spent his time, you know, hanging out and being Pharaoh and enjoying that. Or some people have speculated there was an official position in Egypt called the overseer of the granaries. It could be that that was his job, but whatever it was called, the point is, he was second only to Pharaoh, just like when he was in Potiphar's house. It said Potiphar gave him everything except for the food, right? He was in command of his own meals and his own wife, of course. Same thing, Joseph is given everything, and the only thing withheld from him is the throne itself. Just like Daniel, when Daniel interpreted the handwriting on the wall to Belshazzar. Remember, Belshazzar made him the third ruler of the kingdom for all of five minutes until Persia came in and overthrew Babylon. But it's a very similar story, and some of the parallels are probably intentional in the way that Scripture narrates it. He says, All my people shall order themselves as you command. This is interesting. The literal Hebrew there is, All my people shall kiss your mouth. And that everybody looked up, that was hilarious, yeah. What, what is he saying here? That they're, they're gonna do every word you say, right? You, you could translate it this way. They shall kiss at your word, meaning if they've gotta kiss the ground, they're gonna get down and kiss the ground. You kiss my ring, you're gonna kiss my ring. It's a very Egyptian way of speaking. They had a lot of metaphors that used the, the kiss image or the mouth as an image. We don't use it quite that way today, but again, this is a totally different culture than ours. So we translate it a little differently This is one reason why we go sometimes with a dynamic translation of scripture, the thought for thought as opposed to the word for word. Because if you're reading this and all my people shall kiss your mouth, you get some really weird interpretations there, wouldn't you? Maybe get some really weird theology out out of that passage. He's paraded around in a chariot. There's another Egyptian word here. When it says bow the knee, the word is abrek. We don't even know what that word means precisely. It means something like make way or bow the knee or Listen to Joseph. And he's given a new name, Zaphanat paneah Again, not quite sure exactly what that means. Probably something along the lines of God speaks and he lives. Very appropriate, I think, for Joseph's life, isn't it? Amen. He's alive because God spoke. And he marries this woman, Asenath, the daughter of Potipharah, That is not Potiphar, just to be clear. Similar name, but it's not the same name. The priest of On. On is The city in Egypt which came to take the Greek name Heliopolis, which is seven miles northeast of Cairo. I don't know much about the geography of Egypt, but I looked it up for you. It was the third largest city in Egypt at the time, behind only Memphis and Thebes. So this is an important fellow here, probably a priest of the sun, the god Ra, and he's going to marry his daughter. Is there a greater reversal in all of scripture than this one right here, except for maybe the resurrection itself. From the pit, to the prison, to the palace. One day, you're down here, living in the prison, trying to come to grips with this is my life now. The next day, you are Zafnat Paneah. Nobody in the prison would even recognize you anymore because they shaved your head and they gave you a robe and a golden chain and a chariot. God does not delight in keeping you in the pit, Christian. The Lord is not sadistic. He does not delight at the pain His people go through. The Lord is a good, gentle, kind Father to us. He desires to get you to this place, to lift you up out of it, and restore you to a greater place even than before. And I really want to say this because I know that this teaching has been badly abused in some corners of the church. That's all they want to talk about is your breakthrough is coming and everything is going to be great and don't worry about it. It's going to be fine. I never want to address matters of sin. Never want to address the things we just talked about, that God has a plan and it's in his good timing. But just because some people have abused this doctrine doesn't mean that we should not hold to it tightly and cling to it and use it as a a point of hope, that God desires to lift up his people. He wants to restore your marriage. He wants to restore your situation. He wants to heal your body. Do you believe that? Well, sometimes God has a plan. Yes, sometimes God has a plan. But do you think that God is angry? Everyone that came to Jesus received healing and blessing from Jesus. And Jesus is our picture of what God is like. The Lord loves you. He cares about your life. He hates to see you suffer. Do you believe that? Some of y'all have a hard time even believing that. It's kind of like we said during worship where we say, It's it's better to be somber in worship because it's more spiritual. So now we think it's more spiritual to think that God is going to put us through the grinder than it is to say that God wants to exalt you. What did James say? Humble yourself in the sight of the Lord and he will what? He'll lift you up. That's grumpy old James. The same one that said faith without works is dead. He's the guy that said humble yourself in the sight of the Lord and he'll lift you up. That's not a strategy to get rich, but it's a strategy to Set your life right. The Bible says, No good thing does the Lord withhold from them who walk uprightly. The Bible says, Delight yourself in the Lord, and He will give you the desires of your heart. Romans 8 says that if God has given us His own Son, is He going to withhold anything else from us? Jesus said, Ask me anything in my name, and I will give it to you, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. We need to remember this, and let ourselves be hopeful as Christians. Some of y'all don't have that problem, but some of us do. And I've been one of you, and I probably will have to learn this lesson again, where you don't even want to ask God to help you. You don't even want to say, I know that God's going to break through because you feel like that's somehow disrespectful to God. You say, well, you know, in in 2 Corinthians 12, God told Paul that my grace is sufficient and my strength is made perfect in weakness. Yes, he did. But God only told Paul that because Paul kept coming. He kept asking. He kept asking the elders to lay hands on him and anoint him with oil until God very specifically came to him and said, not this time, Paul, which tells you that Paul's regular expectation was that God was going to lift him up out of the pit. We need to remember this. He wants to help you. And even if your pit ends up being a lifelong pit, what's waiting for you at the end of your life? You're going to be raised up to be exalted with Christ Jesus in his kingdom. Revelation says you're going to sit on the throne with Christ. Let that sink into your noggin for a little bit. That sounds blasphemous, but it's in the Bible, isn't it? That's the hope that hangs over the life of a Christian. Hope. 2 Corinthians 4, 17-18 says that this light momentary affliction... Light momentary affliction. Paul was being dragged into the city square and beaten. He was being thrown into prison. He was being lied on. He was being slandered. He goes through that long list, danger from robbers, danger from wild animals, danger at sea, danger on the road, danger from false brothers. And he says, light momentary affliction. There's actually a part in Hebrews where the writer very gently chides the church there and says, Y'all have not resisted to the point of shedding blood yet. His point is, what are y'all so distressed for? There are Christians getting their heads chopped off. So y'all need to get in your right place. It's a good reminder for us, isn't it? This light momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen, everything that you went through in 2020 and following are transient. What does that mean? It blows away with the wind. It's gone. Psalm 37 says, fret not yourself because of evildoers, because you're going to turn your head and look back and you won't be able to find them. But the things that are unseen are eternal. This is why we can't resent being in the pit. Because Romans 8.18 says it's not worth comparing to the future glory. So, We have gotten into a bad habit when we're going through rough times and we come to each other and say, but don't forget, you're going to be in heaven forever someday. We say, well, that doesn't help me right now. I'm going through rough times. Don't you know what I'm going through? Paul comes in and says, how dare you even compare your trial with what's waiting for you on the other side? There's something we've got to reclaim as a church where we stop putting our trials on this pedestal. Don't we do that? Don't we act like our trials are the worst thing and our sin that we're struggling with is the worst thing, these big, horrible monsters that we're never going to get out from under? That's That's not Christian teaching. Christian teaching says we are more than conquerors. Persecuted Christians being thrown to the lions were called more than conquerors. They went to their graves singing hymns in the, in the Roman circus, when they would let out the animals and the gladiators to come and chop them into pieces and burn them to the stake, they'd be sitting there preaching the gospel as the flames licked their body and burned their skin away. Those who humble themselves before God are usable and are able to be restored. First Peter 5, 6, similar to the one in James, says, Humble yourself before the Lord so that at the proper time he may lift you up. There's a proper time. We just talked about that but there's still hope on the other end. And you've got to hold on to it so tightly that it doesn't matter how many cupbearers break your heart, you're going to keep going. Don't make demands of God, but trust that his will and his plan are better than anything you could even come up with. Verse 46 through 57 just gets better for Joseph, finally. (laughs) Joseph was 30 years old when he entered the service of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And Joseph went out from the presence of Pharaoh and went through all the land of Egypt. During the seven plentiful years, the earth produced abundantly, and he gathered up all the food of these seven years which occurred in the land of Egypt and put the food in the cities. He put in every city the food from the fields around it. And Joseph stored up grain in great abundance like the sand of the sea until he ceased to measure it, for it could not be measured. Before the year of famine came, two sons were born to Joseph. Asenath, the daughter of Potipharah, priest of On, bore them to him. Joseph called the name of the firstborn Manasseh. For he said, God has made me forget all my hardship and all my father's house. The name of the second he called Ephraim. For God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. The seven years of plenty that occurred in the land of Egypt came to an end. And the seven years of famine began to come, as Joseph had said. There was famine in all lands, but in all the land of Egypt there was bread. When all the land of Egypt was famished, the people cried to Pharaoh for bread. Pharaoh said to all the Egyptians, go to Joseph. What he says to you, do. Reminds me of what Mary said at the wedding at Cana, doesn't it? You do whatever he says. It's good advice. So when the famine had spread over all the land, Joseph opened all the storehouses and sold to the Egyptians, for the famine was severe in the land of Egypt. Moreover, all the earth came to Egypt to Joseph to buy grain, because the famine was severe over all the earth. So now Joseph is 30 years old, which means he was 28 two years before, and he was 17 and he was taken away, so it's been 13 years now. He's free, he's married, he's powerful, and he's very successful. Do you wonder if anybody started to challenge him around year six, maybe? You think that there's gonna be a famine after all this? Look at how much it's increasing. Look at all this grain. You're crazy, Joseph. And then year eight run, rolls around. He exercises strong financial discernment here. I could teach a whole other lesson on the financial principles we learn here. Save your money, don't spend it all. That's the short version. And he stores enough grain to last beyond the famine. He has two children by Asenath. Manasseh comes from the Hebrew word nasha, which means to forget, because he says, I've finally forgotten my homeland. And that's not, of course, that he doesn't remember them. The point is, I don't even think about it anymore. I'm not sitting there brooding over it every night. And then his other son is Ephraim from the Hebrew word para, which means fruitful. Very important to note here, Joseph is living as an Egyptian in Egypt. He's married an Egyptian wife. He gives his children Hebrew names. Joseph is spiritually leading his wife. That's very important. He's probably the the first patriarch so far to actually do that. And these two sons are going to be tribes of Israel. We'll see that Jacob, when he blesses his children, gives a double portion to the sons of Joseph. And later on, when the land in the promised land is distributed, the tribe of Levi is not going to get a portion of the land because they're the ones to take care of the tabernacle and they're supposed to be taken care of by the people. So that leaves an open tribe and the tribe of Manasseh and Ephraim step in there. And over time, Ephraim would become the dominant tribe in the northern kingdom of Israel so that in the prophetic books, especially when it refers to Ephraim, it's not just the tribe of Ephraim, it's the whole nation of the northern kingdom. So Joseph's children will be be very influential in the 12 tribes of Israel. So finally, after 13 years of slavery, prison, despair, he's finally forgotten his past. And that's a great thing. He's not obsessing over it anymore. He's finally able to move on. And the famine comes. I thought this was interesting. Because it does not mention the fact that water was scarce, but that it's the bread that was scarce, it's more than likely the problem was not a lack of rain. But it was probably some kind of blight or an insect plague or something else that ruined the crops. Because, you know, the the land of Egypt has the Nile River. And every year it floods and they irrigate the ground with it. So it's not that the Nile dried up. And this affects other nations too. And perhaps there is something to the fact that in Pharaoh's dream, the east wind brought a blight to the uh, to the grain. So it could be that there's something, it's not that it's not raining so much as much as they can't get it to grow. Just something to maybe add a little color to the story for you. But God has blessed Joseph and he's made him to be a blessing. So much so that when the famine does come, he's riding high over it. Almost as if he doesn't notice it. And he's able to bring everybody else along to the same place because he was faithful to obey the prophetic word when it came the first time. It's no good to wait and see. Oh, oh, oh! now there's a famine. We better save our grain. Uh, no chance now. This is what God does. God uses our years in the pit to strengthen us to serve other people when they're in the pit. People who meet God at the bottom of their life, they raise families that can lead the way because they've been to that place. They know what it's like to lose everything and trust God there. There are some people that have walked with the Lord their whole life, but they've never really been tried, that word trial. They've never been tested. And so sometimes you see them and you wonder, I thought you were more mature than this, because sometimes we've walked with the Lord, but we've never been brought low like that and had to trust Him along the way. And sometimes faith shipwrecks in those moments. But we ought to be preparing ourselves for that. The Lord is able to prepare us for it. But knowing that, we cannot despise the Lord for bringing us down into the pit. Even Jesus Christ himself did not despise his humiliation because he knew what it was worth. He knew what going to the cross meant. He said, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. Which is why it says in Hebrews 4, 15 and 16, We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Lord Jesus himself is our example of enduring even a deeper pit than Joseph did, faithfully, and being exalted at the end of it. In fact, Joseph is what you call a type of Christ. A type is a prefiguring. It's a a picture of something that was going to come later. There are many Old Testament figures and stories that prefigure what Messiah was going to be for the nation of Israel. For example, Jesus was also rejected by his brothers and thrown down into the earth. Jesus was falsely accused and falsely imprisoned. But the king raised him up out of that pit and set him at his own right hand. And now his wisdom and his authority are the rule for all mankind. And here we are in our famine and in our drought, and yet there's Jesus ready to give us the bread of life and the water which none will thirst again after they've tasted it. Jesus is like Joseph, but Jesus is greater than Joseph. His redemption saves not just lives, Jesus saves souls. If you're in the dry and the weary land, if you're trapped in the pit, I know one who has been there and has risen from the dead, and is ready to intercede on your behalf today. They would say to each other, there's grain in Egypt, to use a term from the Psalms, there's balm in Gilead. There's a Savior named Jesus Christ. And we need His intercession. Do you know why? We read this story, and most of the time we put ourselves in the place of Joseph. That's perfectly appropriate, right? But you know what? Very often... We're not Joseph in the story. We're Potiphar and his wife. We're the baker. We're the forgetful cupbearer. We're the jealous brothers. And what we need is is not vindication. Joseph is waiting for God to vindicate me. Give me justice. We don't need justice. We need mercy. Because justice for us means you're going to be hanged on a tree. Because sin is a pit too. And it's one that we're all stuck in. But here's good news. God is merciful. And His Son is ready to forgive you and to redeem your life. He's done everything that was necessary to provide help in your time of need. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all His benefits, who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. Friend, you've got to trust that God knows what he's doing with you and not try to force the situation. We are active people, aren't we? We want to get it done. We're pilgrims. We're pioneers. We're soldiers. How can I fix this? Sometimes there is no answer and we're just going to make it worse. And it's time for us to sit back and behold the salvation of the Lord. Because God is wise and He's preparing you for the life that He's planned for you. And someday you're going to come out of that pit. But in the meantime, what did Job say? Blessed be the name of the Lord.